Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Ann Kutcher, MD, and Michael Lerner as they discuss Enso House, the story of a Zen hospice. Ann Kutcher, welcome to the New School. Thank you. You are the director of Enso House, which is a volunteer, all-volunteer, nonprofit hospice care home affiliated with Tahoma One Drop Zen Monastery on Whidbey Island, north of Seattle. And you've been doing that now for just about 12 years. Are you glad you came? I am. You are. Mm-hmm. Good. Prior to that, you were a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Arizona Health Sciences Center and a teaching attending in internal medicine residency at Tucson Medical Center with clinical practice focused on geriatric medicine and hospice care. So you've been in this world of geriatric medicine and hospice care pretty much for a long time. Is that true? Since I was uh, in my late 30s. In your late 30s. If... uh, you had a family member who was facing death, um, and uh, you were trying to negotiate your way through different ways of dying and hospice care and the rest. What are the three most important things you think a family should know uh, when they're facing decisions about hospice care? It needs to be a safe place. Mm-hmm. And that may mean different things to different people. But a sense of safety for whoever is in the bed mm-hmm. is as important as it is for the people around the bed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really um, also necessary, I think, to, f- to know with some confidence that the skill that's needed to take care of the mechanics of care um, are, um, can be relied upon so that those mechanics become background rather than foreground. And um, I think those are two, two very basic things. There's always a third. There's always a third. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking in my own uh, in my own experience, for instance, with my own mother. Um, the safest place was her own bed in her own home. Mm-hmm. And it was a tremendous reassurance to all of us who were taking care of her that there were there was a team behind us mm-hmm. for support. 
And then I guess the, the third thing is the space. The space um, psychically, emotionally, physically, um, I guess in all dimensions, the space to allow what's happening to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it can expand in this time of what feels like tremendous contraction. Mm-hmm. And that also is very different for everyone. Mm-hmm. So those are three beautiful points. Let's see if I can repeat them. The first is that there needs to be a sense of safety. Mm-hmm. The second is that the uh, mechanical or technical aspects of care uh, need to be something you can rely on and they are there so they can be background rather than foreground. Mm-hmm. And the third is that the space itself, whether physical, emotional, spiritual, matters mm-hmm. uh, so that there can be a sense of expansiveness at a time when so much feels like it's contracting. Yeah. That's beautiful. So over the 12 years that you've done this work at Enso House, you've had uh, 73 people come through. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that emphasizes, I mean, let me start by saying, I feel a personal dedication, as you know, to Enso House, mm-hmm. and um, helped think about it with the founder, Shota Harada Roshi, the Zen teacher who founded the Zen Center, which is right next door, and, and wanted this as part of it, um, and um, just have tried to contribute as I can. Um, yeah, this is a parenthesis, but it's a, a memorable one. I remember I came up here a few years ago and I was at some event, some gathering, and you came up to me, there's a bunch of people in the room, and you said, I've got to tell you, I was so mad at you for a long time. I don't know that I used the word mad. What was it? I think I said pissed off. Oh, pissed off. <laughs> right. So tell, tell the story of why you were pissed off. Oh, it's true. I was. I know. Yeah. Um, And then I also said, but it was because I was so angry that you're responsible for me staying. Right. Yeah. And that's true, too. Mm. Um, In that first gathering that that occurred uh, with you and the rest of the the board, all of whom had had, uh, gathered together, in the, at least probably three or four months previously, um, you were emphatic and pretty dogmatic and so assured of yourself, of course for good reason, but I wasn't willing to swallow that. <laughs> um, that I was immediately um, suspicious. Mm-hmm. And you made me particularly angry when you looked at me at the end, towards the end of this meeting, and you said, you know, if you don't take responsibility, 
for putting this together and sticking with it, it won't happen. And I was ready to slug you. (laughs) (laughs) Because I hadn't made my mind up about Mm -hmm. whether or not I Mm -hmm. was committed. Mm -hmm. I was still in a sort of an exploratory phase and on a sabbatical for a year to just get Mm -hmm. things moving. And... um, no truer words were spoken, really, in in this in 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 organize, in getting this place to grow itself. It's absolutely true that there had to be one wastebasket for everything to get thrown into, and um, and I and I I was the wastebasket, um, and very happily so now. Mm-hmm. I have to say that I wouldn't change a word of what I said <laughs> uh, because it's a deep conviction that in almost any worthwhile pers- piece of work there is at least one person, sometimes two or three, but, mm-hmm. but typically one person whose fierce dedication to the work Mm-hmm. enables other people to step up and surround them and fill out all the other critical pieces. But there has to be one person, in my experience, who's just fiercely dedicated to it. Um, but your choice of metaphor about what you were, which was a wastebasket, oh. is a particularly interesting metaphor. I've heard that one person called many things. Uh, but I hadn't heard that one person called a wastebasket before, so uh, that expands my sense of my role. <laughs> well, I don't, I, I don't mean it pejoratively. No, but it if just, you're a wastebasket, I'm a garbage It all gets dumped there. Man. There you go. <laughs> you're the garbage truck. <laughs> you're lumbering up and down the road. Right. Well, okay, so yeah. I wanted to bring that into the yeah, foreground just yeah, in case there was lingering yeah. resentment. We could no, get it no, out on the table no, at the start no, of the conversation. No, not, 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 no. <laughs> well, we're no. sitting in Enso House, which is this beautiful structure with uh, uh, wooden beams and wooden ceiling, arch ceiling, uh, these uh, Zen... Uh, Calligraphy pieces done by Shoto Harada Roshi on the walls. They're actually Kaz Tanahashi's. Oh, who's that? He's from San Francisco. Oh. I sh- I'm, can't imagine that you haven't huh. bumped into Kaz. Uh-huh. Wonderful. He, uh, wonderful. did a calligraphy demonstration here. And- oh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. And there's a deep sense of peace about the place. It's beautifully, simply but beautifully furnished. Um, now, it was... Uh, donated or the space was provided by David and Cynthia Trowbridge, isn't mm-hmm. that correct? That's right, yeah. And David and Cynthia were uh, students of Roshi's, our students, and um, and did this incredibly generous thing. Uh, he is a, a tech entrepreneur, had a career in tech, and wrote a remarkable book called Enso House, which uh, I'm drawing on for this conversation. Oh, okay. Uh, but a lovely book called Enso mm-hmm. House. Um, and so, and it's unlike, isn't it fair to say it's unlike most residential hospices in a number of ways? For one thing, it's an all-volunteer staff. That's extremely unusual. That's right. 
Secondly, it's, um, it's licensed in a somewhat different way from most hospices, right? Yes, very right. different yeah. way. Uh, it's li- we're licensed as an adult family home. Right. Um, although I've, I've run into uh, uh, hospices on the East Coast primarily that are unlicensed. Completely, completely. unlicensed. Um, and those fall under some kind of neighbor helping neighbor criteria. Yes. Is that correct? As far as I as far as I can tell, in each state's requirements are different. Right. So in in the state of Washington, you are allowed to take care of one unrelated adult in an unlicensed facility mm-hmm. in an effort to help encourage neighbors to take care of neighbors. Mm-hmm. But once there's more than one unrelated adult mm-hmm. in a caregiving situation, you need to move into a licensure. And that's the one that you have? And that's is, the one that we have. So it's called adult family care. Family home. Adult family home. Now that's a much less stringent licensing scene than, how are most hospices licensed? Well, hospice with a capital H yeah. is basically a Medicare-defined Benefit. Entity, yeah, right. Um, and it's um, we looked at we looked at at that as an option when we were first getting started, and it was clear that the facility, the, the house would have had to have been essentially raised to the floor, right, in order to fulfill the requirements of the physical plant only. So most Medicare certified hospices with a capital H are mm. generally related to larger systems, mm-hmm. hospital systems, right. um, and many of and and the the residential facilities that a hosp, uh, hospice with a capital H have are usually either on the grounds of a hospital or at least very closely related to the staffing and the 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 whole mechanical system of of a big hospital. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done uh, two conversations with an extraordinary man in San Francisco named B.J. Miller. Oh, he is neat. Yeah. Yeah. Have you met him? I haven't met him personally, but I know about him. So he's, you know, the director of Zen Hospice in San Mm -hmm. Francisco. Yeah. His personal story is extraordinary. He had an accident when he was at Princeton, lost both legs and most of one arm. Uh, yeah. When he comes out to Commonweal, uh, he drives a fast motorcycle too fast over the roads, you know, with uh, two mechanical legs and, you know, his partial arm and a sleeve that connects to the... Uh, he's, when he walks in the door, you have no idea that his, he doesn't have natural legs uh, because he just walks in, he's handsome, athletic, remarkable. Then he sits down in the chair and hitches his trousers up a little, and or his blue jeans, and he doesn't have artificial legs that have artificial skin because he likes the architecture of uh-huh. the metal and, uh-huh. you know, plastic uh-huh. and so uh-huh. on. Uh, and in any case, that's yeah. an aside, but BJ um, gives an extraordinary uh-huh. account of the history of the hospice movement. Uh-huh. Uh, going back to Dame Cicely Saunders, Dame Cicely Saunders, uh, who started it as essentially a spiritual movement in London, no? Or was uh, it more medical? It was more medical. Okay. She was working in in an inpatient oh, oncology yeah. ward. Okay. And yeah. And and in 
England, and it, so it's but it had a strong spiritual energy to it, I believe. No, am I wrong about well, that? Well, my understanding is yeah. that her her real um, distress mm-hmm. was related to the untended um, to suffering suffering of her of dying of people her, of dying people, and that included both the physical and the spiritual and the um, societal. Right. What year did she start that, do you know? That was, I think, in the, uh, maybe the 40s. Right. She came to the States in the 70s to Connecticut. And that's when it started in the States? And that's when it started in the States. And what was the name of the cocktail that she created for uh, patients to I do? I don't know. Is it something like the Brofman? Bron- something, it starts with a B. Yeah, Brofman yeah. cocktail or something, yeah. which yeah. had a bunch of good stuff in it, right? Yeah. And she kind of cooked it for a while before she got the essential combination of... she yeah. tested it herself. Yeah, right. And when it came to the States, uh, at first it was, again, kind of this volunteer movement, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then as it grew, at a certain point, it became a, a Medicare benefit, right? That's right. And then it all shifted, right? That's right. Because once it was a Medicare benefit, it created an industry. That's right. And so the way it is today, you have in many urban settings, you have a whole bunch of nonprofit and for-profit companies competing for your business, right. right? And they can vary enormously in quality, and they've been stripped down to essentials because it's capitated. Right. And they only have a modest amount of money per person, That's right. and so they strain to provide even the bare essentials. That's right, but I wouldn't overemphasize the straining and the bare essentials because okay. I think a number of them do a terrific job. Okay. But it's problematic. Right. It's a it's a business. It is which a business. Is what the problem with medicine in America is. Right. Right. Anyway. Right. Now Enso House is almost the antithesis That's of right. this, right? Because you are here as a physician Mm -hmm. in residence, Mm -hmm. essentially volunteering your time Mm -hmm. with volunteers around you, Mm -hmm. taking a very small number of patients Mm -hmm. and taking what everybody tells me, because I know people who've had loved ones here, taking exquisite care of individual people as they come through. It's not a business model that can be uh, translated. It, it can't very be replicated well. very well. No. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So I asked you what three things families should know. Um, if you look back at the twelve years you've been here, what are the three things that you've learned from being here that you didn't really know at the start? I thought that this experience would um, be a really um, tricky way for me to figure out how to handle my own dying. Mm-hmm. And that's a load of baloney. Mm-hmm. So I've learned, I, I really do know now that. Um, 
there is no way to know. Mm-hmm. So I've given up on that. Okay. <laughs> um, I've I've really uh, I really appreciate the. Um, the uh, power of um, getting away from your, of, of mm, abandoning yourself, <laughs> of stepping out of your own story and your own, my own story, my own um, preconceptions. Um, and letting the, uh, letting the immediate moment tell me what what it is. What is needed. What is needed. Yeah. And I'd always lived in an environment, at least professionally, where it was much more important for me to be completely confident of what I knew and how I responded. And here I've learned that it's even more important to be completely um, unknowing Mm -hmm. (laughs) of what I, of what I know. Mm. That's not to say that I don't totally appreciate my training, Mm -hmm. but that tends to be background Mm -hmm. music. so that's two, yeah? Mm-hmm. You say there's a third? There's always a third. <laughs> um, I've learned how to cook. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Which really surprises oh. me. <laughs> I'm uh-huh. a really good cook now. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a lot, yeah. a lot of cooking that happens here that I, that I, and you just, you, you use what's in the, what's in the pantry. Mm-hmm. So the first piece was that you haven't learned how you're going to die at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you thought you would. Um, the second piece was um, uh, to just get out of your story and respond to the needs of the moment. Mm-hmm. And the third piece was that you learned how to cook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the last piece is about nourishment. Mm-hmm. And the piece before that was about openness to mm-hmm. what's happening. Mm-hmm. And the first one, which I really relate to, is about letting go of your own story. I had the most interesting experience two or three years ago. It really blew me away. I think it was three years ago. I was going to a, a meeting down in, uh, in uh, Santa, Santa Monica, I think, somewhere like that. And... Um, I had this experience that, oh yeah, I, I walked into the meeting. The experience happened before I walked into the meeting. The experience was that, I'm not sure if it was a dream or a waking dream, but the experience was that I had completely lost interest in my own story. Mm-hmm. Just completely. And my story was like, a clown's outfit that was lying over the back of a chair in the corner of an empty room. 
it was just lying there. And I thought, that's really interesting. And um, then the next time I looked at it, the, uh, the clown outfit was filled with a straw man. And then the third time I looked at it, a little later, the clown outfit was filled with a very robust clown, very self-confident, not muscular, sort of soft, strong clown with short, dark hair and, you know, kind of swarthy-looking clown. And he was sitting next to me in a chair, and he was kind of looking at his fingernails and sort of whistling to himself and glancing over at me from time to time. And what I realized was that my story was there. And when I needed to, I could go inhabit my story. But I was no longer attached to my story. It was the most interesting experience. And then I walked into this conference... And here, there are a lot of friends of mine, 50 people, wonderful people doing great service work, busy telling their stories to each other in one form or another, you know? Yeah. You know, most people, when they get up to give a talk, say, let me tell you a little bit about background. They walk you through their story, you know, which is fine. But um, there's another way to go about life, which is just to... Um, just to discover one day that maybe you don't, maybe you're not your story. Maybe your story is like a clown outfit, you know? Boy, what a lucky man you are. Well, I was lucky on that one. I'm not no sure I'm lucky kidding. all the time, but uh, I mean, I feel those graces around me a lot. But, uh, but that, I, yeah, it's very, I, and, you know, I can get caught up in my story, but I just really, like when we were preparing for this talk and, and I said to you, are you nervous? And you said, you know what? I really don't care. <laughs> well, you know, that attitude of like, you know, whatever it is, I don't care. It's just a beautiful, I mean, not care. You know, it's not that you're not deeply committed to doing the work right, but there's a no, level at right. which no, that's... it just isn't, you know, it's just whatever it is. You do your best and then, you know. Yeah. So. I know what you're saying. I know what you mean. <laughs> so, um, can I ask you about your life a little bit? Sure. Where were you born? I was born in South Dakota. Whoa, where? Rapid City. Hmm. My mother said I was conceived during the blizzard of 49. In what? During the blizzard of 49. No kidding. When the snow was so high it covered the They had nothing else the, to do. Huh? <laughs> of these gigantic bomber airplanes that my father flew. Oh, your father was a bomber yeah, pilot? Yeah, he wow. was. Wow. Would, uh, during World War II? Absolutely. Where did he fly? He flew over Germany. Wow. Wow. And how did he do with that after the end of the war was he did he survive it psychologically not necessarily an easy thing to do uh, he was a he was a Russian Jewish immigrant oh my who joined the Army Air Corps when he 
got out of high school uh-huh. and ended up uh, becoming a pilot. Uh-huh. And he said, rose through the ranks very quickly because everyone else around him died. Uh-huh. And he um, left uh, that experience um, Probably the way he went into it, mm-hmm. he was a very um, straightforward, um, move on mm-hmm. um, person who became a um, base commander. Mm-hmm. And when he was being uh, uh, moved up to Brigadier General, Mm -hmm. he told them that he wanted to retire instead. He was 40 years old. He was going to retire instead and go to medical school. He had never been to college. Mm. And he had four kids. Mm. And he did that. Wow. So I grew up really in Jackson, Mississippi, during the early 60s, um, when the South was erupting and he was in medical school. You're listening to a conversation with Ann Kutcher, M.D., and Michael Lerner. It was quite an experience. And what was your mother's life about? My mother was a uh, a, a blue-line Philadelphia blonde um, princess. A wasp. A wasp who said she knew that if she didn't marry someone who had dirt under his fingernails, her children would be worthless. So no, her parents didn't come to her wedding, to the Russian Jew. Jew. Um, you know, my mother and father were very similar. My father right? was an immigrant Russian Jew, and uh-huh. my mother was a wasp Protestant. That was their second marriages, but still it was the same. Yeah. And, and they got married in 42 or so, so... 45. Yeah, this was a period of time when... Wasp princesses didn't marry Jewish, Russian right. Jewish immigrants right. a lot of the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did you have brothers and sisters? I have two younger sisters and an older brother. Mm-hmm. Um, my father had been inspired to change his life mm-hmm. um, by by when he met um, a melon. A, a, Mm -hmm. a melon man Mm -hmm. who uh, had done the same thing with his life after meeting Albert Schweitzer. Mm -hmm. Gone to medical school and then started a a hospital in Haiti. Mm -hmm. And my dad went to Haiti in his capacity as this base commander, Mm -hmm. met this guy and decided to do the same thing. So when he graduated from med school in Jackson, we moved to Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that he wanted to build a clinic there. Um, And he spent the rest of his life basically either on an Indian reservation or in Guatemala or in Mm. India or Bangladesh or all over Mm. the world, while my mother raised her children as Episcopalians and made sure they went to to good schools. (laughs) So where did you live? Um, we moved to Arizona just 
basically when I was finishing high school, towards the end of high school. So and so the family stayed there and your dad went around doing yes. this stuff? He had a family practice in Tucson. Uh-huh. But um, his... his uh, His real life was mm-hmm. was else not elsewhere. I shouldn't mm-hmm. say that, but his he, he spent he never did anything other mm-hmm. than than that. So, what yeah. were you like in eighth grade? Oh golly! <laughs> I remember this. I was in Jackson in the eighth grade. I was in Jackson in the eighth grade, and my my mother was uh, working for a biracial citizens council, and I took the bus to school every day, and I um, uh, was on the bus coming home one day when um, a uh, black woman got on the bus and sat right in the middle, and this is when there were whites-only signs. She sat right in the middle, and all of the school kids around me came to her and started um, saying, what are you doing, you know, what are you doing here, nigger? Get to the back of the bus. And she just sat there, and one guy poured a Coca-Cola over her head, mm-hmm. and the bus was all... Uh, it was all mainly kids and this one woman, and the bus driver got stopped the bus, got up, and he took the woman and he told her to get off the bus that she was causing trouble. Mm -hmm. She got off the bus and she looked up at the window and she said, your mother should have taught you some manners to these kids. And the kids said, my mother taught me to hate niggers. Mm. That's been burned into my brain. Um, That and... (laughs) Going to to junior high school at Bailey Junior High School, which was design, it was the exact same f- building that was built for the prison. That it was cheaper to use the same floor plan and everything. It looked like a prison, and they had slam books there then, which were the equivalent of Twitter now. And they'd go around the room, and people would write comments about people in the in these books. I don't know if you ever bumped into any of these. And so someone would make a slam book with every kid's name at the top of the list, and then people would comment, and it would go around secretly, and it came to me, and I looked at my name, and it was, she stinks, she smells, she's fat, she's, I mean, just every, every... Oh, it was, it, I, it was a, the whole, yes, eighth grade was tough. Wow. I I I wouldn't I wouldn't want to give anybody eighth grade again. Hmm. But then we we but then we left. And what were you like as a senior in high school? Oh golly, I was way too serious. Hmm. I was way too old for my age. Hmm. Probably kind of icy. I see. Yeah. Do you have friends? Oh, yeah, I never felt, uh, I never, yes, I had friends, Mm. sure, but I was never, um, 
I, 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 I was much, I've, I've always been pretty uh, comfortable by myself, so I'd never, I never gravitated naturally to the group stuff. Mm. And what about as a senior in college? I dropped out of school. So, you did? Yeah. When did you drop out? I dropped out, uh, I got married when I was 18 uh-huh. to a rock and roll drummer mm. who uh, fell in love with a pianist when I was 21. Mm-hmm. And so I had dropped out of school at the end of my junior year, mm. which was really hard on my parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it took me nine years before I went back to school. Did you have children? No children. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said you got married to a drummer. What was the story about the pianist? Uh, he left me for the pianist. Oh, he left you for the pianist. Mm-hmm. Oh. So that was, the f- um, that, was, that was a major sh- turning point for me. And it's related to how I ended up going to Japan, Hmm. where I was for about five years. What were you doing there? I went to study pottery. Hmm. Uh Aha. Mm-hmm. And is that... So what happened in Japan? You didn't run into Roshi in Japan, did you? No, I ran into Chisan. You ran into Chisan. Now, Chisan, just so that we understand, our listeners understand us, Roshi is Shoto Harada Roshi, who is the Japanese founder of the Zen Center here and of this hospice and has a a temple in Japan, and he also has uh, students around the world that he goes to work with. And his fellow monk... uh, who was a student of uh, the same teacher who taught him, is known as Chisan. And she's a very extraordinary woman, whose birthday it is today, actually. That's right. Today, let's record it, is November 14th. 14th. Mm-hmm. And Chisan turns 69 Nine. today. Mm-hmm. And she's a very, very extraordinary person who translates for Roshi, but... Um, Translate is too um, is a completely inadequate word because she embodies the teaching as she speaks. So you're really getting the wisdom of two experienced Zen teachers, one Western. Uh, and Chisan, the reason I asked about the pottery was that Chisan went to Japan to study pottery, right? And then ended up meeting Roshi and... Uh, but was told before that that she had to choose between pottery and Roshi. And then I think Roshi told her she didn't have to choose. Is that the Something story? like that. Yeah. yeah. So you went to study pottery. I went to study pottery. Mm-hmm. I went to find an apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. And within probably two weeks of arriving, I read in a throwaway English newspaper the front page story of my year as a pottery apprentice in Takayama by Priscilla Sturant. Who was Chisan. Who was Chisan, and I decided I needed to meet her. Mm-hmm. And somehow I tracked her down, and um, she was living in Okayama. Uh, no, in, I'm sorry, in Kobe. And um, 
I was in Kobe, and uh, she got me a room in the boarding house that she was living in, and it was at the base of the hill from Shofukuji, which is the temple of Harada's teacher and of Chisan's teacher. Mumona Roshi, is that? Mumon. Mumon Roshi. Mumon Roshi. Who was a very great teacher. Who was apparently a very great teacher. Yeah. Um, and I would follow Chisan up the hill in the middle of the night or early morning to uh, Shofukuji um, like a little dog. Um, I had had no interest or experience with Zen, but I was completely um, taken by the aesthetics of it, the sound, the smells, the color, the light. Um, and she was, um, and I met Harada then. He was he was uh, Mumon's senior monk, and he scared the hell out of me. I really didn't care if I ever saw him again. <laughs> I also met Mumon, and he just didn't do anything for me. Mm-hmm. But the long and the short of it is, is that Chisan was um, my guardian angel there. Mm-hmm. And when Mumon introduced her to a pottery teacher in Bizen, I went to visit Chisan in Bizen, and Chisan introduced me to uh, a man who became my teacher. And I moved into his household. And it was a pretty medieval uh, experience for three, four years. Uh, and what quite was, different. What was his name? His name was Kaneshige Michiaki. And his father, Toyo, was a living national treasure. So my. A Zen, Zen teacher? No, this oh. is ceramics. This is. Oh, ceramics. Okay, terrific. All pottery. Yeah. You know? I get it. A tea, a tea town, a tea, tea pottery town. Right. And um, Chisan was in the same town. Mm-hmm. And we, for one year, lived in the same house there. Mm-hmm. The whole story is basically that I, Chisan is a deep, dear friend mm-hmm. through those years. And it was years that she was really um, moving through her own life um, as a potter and as a Zen student. And it wasn't until... So I left Japan. I I left my apprenticeship to come back to the States to try and go to medical school because that's what I'd learned in those years. How old were you when you came back to the States? 28. So it was 23 to 28. In Japan. Yeah, in Japan. And I'd gone to learn pottery, but I ended up in a in a workshop where the kiln was fired one time a year. Mm. The apprentices were not allowed to go to any other kiln firings. Mm. And the teacher was very, very, very rarely in the workshop. Mm. And so I spent month after month after month taking care of the clay, um, picking the stones out of it, wedging it, grating it, um, and at night working on my own pots. Mm-hmm. And by the end of those years, I really didn't know anything mm-hmm. about being a potter. Mm-hmm. But I really did know that I had the capacity for anything. Mm-hmm. 
And that um, is what gave me the confidence to, to, to come back to the States and try and go to medical school, which had been in my mind before I had gone to Japan. I decided, mm-hmm. yeah. So when it had been in your mind, what, was being a doctor something that you had a sense of calling to earlier, or did it only start then? Oh no! It 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 had been, I it it, it was really a, a related to my dad. Right. And but when did you begin to think that you might wanted to be a doctor? Um, I thought about it when we moved to Puerto Rico, and he took mm. me to the tetanus wards. I thought about it when uh, during a, a, a during my the disintegration of my love life, my my father figured out a way to help his his weeping daughter by getting putting me on a bus and sending me down into the Sierra Madres of Mexico to a clinic that was like eight hours donkey ride into the into the mountains with a with an evangelical missionary guy who had learned how to pull teeth and so was seen in the whole region as the only person with any medical experience. My dad sent me down there to read the PDR, the the book that tells you what drugs do, in order to separate, in order to to categorize the drug samples that he sent to this clinic and put them in in a bookcase named For the Heart, For the Stomach, For... This guy, this missionary guy couldn't read, couldn't read or write, really. He was, and I was there for like four months, and they were bringing people in who'd blown their hands off with dynamite fishing in the streams. It was unbelievable. It was really great. Um, so I'd thought about it then, and then when I, I, I worked in a free clinic and thought about it then, and when I decided I didn't want to think about anything anymore and I didn't want to be a dilettante and not know what I was going to do with my life, it was either going to be medical school or pottery, because I loved both of them. And I looked at medicine and I thought, I can't go to med school, I dropped out of college. Mm. I'll go do I'll do pottery. And then I looked at doing pottery in America and they say, Well, you have to go to be to do it seriously, you have to get a master's in fine arts. And I thought, I can't do that if I can't go if I can't go back to school. So somebody gave me a book <laughs> about Bernard Leach, who had left England at the turn of the century on a boat and ended up in Japan and became a pot, a, an apprentice to a potter, and the book was all about his apprenticeship. And I thought that's what I need to do. I need mm. to be an apprentice. So I went to Japan. Mm. And by the end of Japan, I knew I wanted to be. I needed to go to medical school. So how did you get into medical school? Oh, by hook or by crook. Where did you go? University of Arizona. Um, and you stayed there and became, joined the faculty. Is that? Oh, I. I mean, faculty. <laughs> Your I'm, clinical faculty. Yeah, clinical okay. faculty. But there yeah. was this time when right. you went to India to work in a... Uh, oh, that was before I came here, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about I that. India. Well, I, gee, that was interesting. I mean, the story as I read about it in David Trowbridge's book was that you show up at this Catholic relief agency, you 
uh, say I want to go somewhere, they give you a stack of paper. You look at one, it says sisters of something or other. You says, I'd take that one. And you go into this godforsaken place in India under unbelievable circumstances and well, that's a try to figure extreme. out how to get out of there. <laughs> well, that's what I did do. Yeah, I spent the first... First many months trying to figure out how to leave. So where was it? It was in Tutikoran in South India, uh, near Madurai, very close to the tip of India. Um, really, and uh, it was a it was a hospital built by the Swiss, probably in the 30s, and run now by the Sisters of Saint Anne, which is why I chose to go there. I figured, why not? <laughs> um, and it was just a terrific experience to um, burn away fear. Mm. You know, the fear, professional fear. I mean, apparently, in order to get to the hospital, you had to walk. Through these rivers of excrement. Well, stuff. that's what I mean, maybe maybe, maybe he. Version. Well, no, theoretically, I told him the story. Yeah. Uh, uh, what what is really in my mind? There were very few. It was a it was a huge city with very few paved roads, so there was a lot of dirt and a lot of dust, and the major crossroads was a bridge over a river that that. Uh, flowed into the Bay of Bengal. And this river was all of the excrement of the millions of inhabitants of this right, city. Right. And there were uh, pump wells, water wells, probably 20 feet away from the edge of this moving right. sludge. Um, and it, it was astonishing to me that anyone was alive. Mm. And it astonished me that anybody who came into that hospital lived. And what I realized is, is that their, their, their mortality rate was probably about the same as my hospital in, in Arizona. Really? <laughs> yeah. Really. Amazing. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And they had very little there. They had very little there. Very little medicine. They didn't have. I mean, they had an ICU, but they didn't have. They didn't have a. Uh, they had a ventilator that nobody had ever been taught how to use, and that had that mm -hmm. there was no oxygen concentrator. Did they have antibiotics? They had antibiotics. Mm -hmm. They did. They actually had drug reps because there are a lot of drugs are manufactured in India, so they would come around to the hospitals, but they didn't have the. There, there were meds that that I was giving there. By counting the drips of the in the in the IV tubing, which we would only use in careful, careful calculation on really um, f precise machinery in an ICU here, cardiac meds. Mm -hmm. um, it was just count those drops, and mm -hmm. maybe it'll work, and maybe it wouldn't. And I'll tell you, it worked as often as it didn't. Was, what about pain meds? Did they have pain meds? They did not have any morphine. Hmm. It was a Catholic hospital. Hmm. They didn't have morphine as a philosophical as matter? As a philosophical matter. Suffering is good. 
Uh, drug addiction is... Is problematic. Is problematic. Yeah. They would not have let anyone who was HIV positive into their hospital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But was, they took care of a lot of people. They took care of a lot of people. Yeah. Took so care of it, a lot it, of people. It burned away fear. It did. Yeah. And according to David's account, you really wanted to get out of there. I really wanted to get out of there. But you couldn't change your flight back, and so you finally just surrendered to it. They, yeah, there wasn't anything else to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and India is really the only place I ever now want to go back to. Mm-hmm. Really. Mm-hmm. So for 12 years now, you find yourself here. Yeah. Yeah. What if uh, I asked you the three things that you know you discovered, but what impact has I mean twelve years is a piece of one's life, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. what's what's happened to you psychologically, spiritually, whatever language you want to figure out? What's happened to you? I don't really know. Yeah. Um, I know I wouldn't be here, though, if Tahoma wasn't here. Mm-hmm. But I also know I can't tell you what Tahoma is. Mm-hmm. Um, Tahoma is really interesting, mm-hmm. isn't it? Oh, it's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, Roshi's center. Um, um, very interesting place. Yeah. Um, so going back to death and dying. Oh, I know what I want to ask you before I go back there. How would you describe yourself, if in any language at all, spiritually? What would you describe, if you have any words for it, your particular orientation or path? I think it's easier for me to describe what I'm not. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't de- describe myself as a Buddhist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wouldn't describe myself as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I, am, I am really interested in being um, led through my life. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense of being loved? Absolutely. So do I. I think it's a really lucky thing. It is, isn't it? A sense of some kind of guidance. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I really do. F- I, that, that's, I'm lucky. Yeah. It's very clear in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, Does it come to you as a voice or a knowing or a sensing? How, how, how does the guidance come? Very, very quietly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, it's a, it's a paradoxically very is spontaneous and yet deliberate knowing. Mm-hmm. 
Can I read you a poem? Sure. By William Stafford called The Way It Is. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it is hard for others to see. When you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. The only thing about that that doesn't feel quite right is the holding on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a sense of being guided. It is a sense of being guided. Mm-hmm. And not even not I mean I and and of of having been given guides. Mm-hmm. And Chisan is certainly one of mine. Mm-hmm. Just for fun, let me read you one more poem. Okay. This is from Rilke. Okay. She who reconciles the ill-matched threads of her life and weaves them gratefully into a single cloth. It's she who drives the loudmouths from the hall and clears it for a different celebration where the one guest is you. In the softness of evening, it's you she receives. You are the partner of her loneliness, the unspeaking center of her monologues. With each disclosure, you encompass more, and she stretches beyond what limits her to hold you. Ooh, now see, that one I can... (laughs) There we go. Now that sense yeah, of being yeah. in some way guided is is such a, a blessing. It's a life. gift. Yeah, it really is. Hmm. So you can't say how it's changed you. You don't know. But you do know that you wouldn't be here if it weren't for the zendo, and you have a sense of guidance that tells you to be here. That's right. right. So, being part of the circle around this place, and you know and I know that there are different points of view about whether an effort should be made to have more guests come through or whether the pace Mm -hmm. at which it's moving is the right one. Mm. Do you have a sense of that yourself? You're listening to a conversation with Ann Kutcher, MD, and Michael Lerner. I really have to um, trust that um, Inso House is its own animal. Mm Mm-hmm. And it has its own. There is a rhythm and a and a life force of this space mm-hmm. that I've come to trust mm-hmm. tremendously. Mm-hmm. And I'm not um, 
really interested in interfering with that. Mm-hmm. I really get that. Now, that could be dumb, mm-hmm. but I don't think so. I don't think it's dumb. Um, and I think I also have to um, genuinely um, live with accepting that this is all changing nevertheless. I mean, I have no idea what what will become of mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. But Ensel House is considered a very valuable resource by the nurses and hospice people no, is, on Whidbey yeah. Island and, and people come from beyond that. And you said something very interesting last night over dinner that uh, that I think it's true that most people would like to die in their homes surrounded by friends and cared for by friends and family and mm-hmm. with the support of hospice. So very often, not always, but very often the people who come here, either the family can't do it anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Or they don't have the support network that that other people might have. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um which is an interesting insight, you know. Yeah. Um, and I was reading about and hearing about um, your first patient, just as an example. We looked at, you have uh, scrolls downstairs with uh, images of all the 73 people who've been through. So the first guy who came was a guy named Jack, right? Yeah. And I looked at an image of him. He, he had this beard that looks like he was out of the 1890s, this sort of huge beard. And you said he was a beat poet from San Francisco who ended up living in a shack at the edge of the ocean on Whidbey Island with no water and only electricity was a uh, extension cord and survived by mowing lawns for people in the area, right? That's right. Right. And then uh, he develops cancer. Yes. And um, so... He, you literally had to drag him here, right? Or he pick him up. Had to go pick him up. Pick him up and put him in a golf cart and drive him to a car and drive him here. You know? Right. Mm-hmm. And when he first got here, your impression, he, he didn't say anything the whole time he was here, right? right? And your impression was that he was incredibly pissed off. Yeah. Yeah. And then... Uh, Chisan came and spent some time with him. Right. And she comes out and tells you he's so grateful that he's here. Right. Neither of you having spoken to him. That's right. Right. So the lesson from you, for you, was how completely projection governs what we think is going on, right? Right. You thought he was pissed. Chisan thought he was in gratitude, right? And I, can I add one yeah, yeah, one more just, one more picture to this? Yeah, yeah. Our nurse Mio'o mm-hmm. Renate, a German uh, woman who was here for ten years, mm-hmm. and a wonderful nurse who taught me everything I know about nursing, um, and a serious Zen student, was with him in the garden room, and he was in a chair, and she was kneeling by the chair feeding him tiny spoonfuls of, um, of a popsicle. And I was watching them from behind. I couldn't see his face, and I could only see her in silhouette. 
And I saw her over, it felt like hours, very slowly feeding this man who was unmoving. And eventually, he lifted up his arm, and he had been unmoving. He lifted up his arm, and he put his hand on her cheek, and he stroked her cheek in the most tender um, it, it was a tenderness that you could feel mm. throughout the whole, mm. you know, across the door. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then he stroked her arm, the arm mm. that she'd been feeding him with, and then it was over, and they sat there and nothing happened. And I felt myself starting to cry mm. from this experience she left him came into the room towards me and I said Renate that was incredible I I, how did you feel and she looked at me and she said I don't like to be touched isn't that something it was fantastic yes Isn't that something? Isn't that great? Mm -hmm. And she knew what she was saying. Mm -hmm. And we all, we, we, we knew, you know, what, it was, and we didn't know a thing. Mm -hmm. It was just great. So, When I asked you about your spiritual life, you said you knew what you weren't. Mm. So let me ask you Mm. a different version Mm. of that. Different people have different experiences of what happens to people after they die. Mm. So B.J. Miller, for example, Mm. runs this Zen hospice, is totally uninterested, as far as Mm. I can tell, in any spiritual assumption of life after death. He just doesn't go there. He's Mm -hmm. just not interested. Mm Other people are more than profoundly interested. Mm -hmm. And having done the Cancer Help Program for 30 years, Mm -hmm. and I started as a complete agnostic about it, but Mm -hmm. over time, I've had so many experiences suggestive of people's souls being in contact with us that Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a lot more likely than not at this point. And then given the whole research literature on near-death experiences mm-hmm. and, you know, the psi phenomena. I could just give a whole bunch of, you know, physics and non-local mm-hmm. realities, da-da-da-da-da. Right, right. But I'm just curious both what your experiences are and what your beliefs are about what happens when people stop breathing. Oh, oh. Well, it's not when people stop breathing. It's way before and way after. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really have no... interest. Mm-hmm. And I cannot deny... the mystery of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that. Mm-hmm. But I, I have no interest in thinking about it. 
or or trying to figure it out or But do you have experiences? Well, I have experiences with animals around here. I mean, coyotes coming and sitting underneath the window or a hundred hawks flying above the house or, mm. you know, one eagle going right in between the e- right in between the branches mm. or a baby deer being born when the moment that someone is dying, you know, right in my view. But um, my feeling is that's happening all the time anyway. We just don't see it. I mean, I think that all of this is always happening. Mm-hmm. The 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 unknowingness of it, the mystery of it, mm-hmm. the wild uh, possibilities. It's it's always there, but we're not uh, privy to it. So when you say I'm you, not privy right, to it. Right. When you say you have no interest in it, mm. which I accept. But is that, a, I mean, that, is that a, a Zen teaching in addition to the fact that it's your point of view? I, uh, well, I, it could be. Yeah. Um, it could be. Um, I know that my, uh, my interest is in what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, I get it. I do have an interest in it, Uh you know? I mean, not... You know what's so interesting to me? Um, You know, I've been doing the work with people with cancer for 30 years, and so, you know, we spend an evening in the Cancer Help Program on death and dying, and I'm always the one that does it, and people often regard it as the most important evening of the week. Um, But what fascinates me is that I have a whole group of friends, wonderful, wonderful people. Betsy McGregor, Mm -hmm. who's part of our community here, and Mm -hmm. I did a new school conversation with her, and she's a physician who's been part of the Enso House group uh, and uh, does a lot of working, writing, and thinking about death and dying. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jennifer Stoll at Commonweal, director of the Mm -hmm. Retreat Center, many others, um, who are really fascinated by and drawn to death and dying. Right. And you know something really interesting? I'm not. It's like, I love life. I'm not either. And I do the death and dying work because it's such a critical aspect of what people need. But, but and I honor and I'm grateful for all the people who are drawn to it. But I have to acknowledge that I'm not. It's it's part of, if I'm into it at all, it's because it's part of being alive, you know, that, as you said, you thought you were going to figure out, this was a tricky way for you to figure out how you deal with your own death. And so I sometimes, but somehow to me, it's being alive that that fascinates me. I'm with you there. Uh-huh. Although I have to say that one, it's it's a it, for someone who's interested in intimacy mm-hmm. and in um, uh, contact, contact, mm-hmm. and lack of affectation. Right. It's uh, it's it's a simple way. It's the real deal. It's yeah. It's a simple way to to put that in in the in, in in the front of your face. I totally get it. And um 
That's what I like about it. Mm -hmm. But I get that with people living with cancer. In That's other words, right. That's in other right. words, you don't have to be dying. No, no. But you do need to be facing something real. You need to be in the death zone. Exactly. <laughs> in that where there's not quite enough oxygen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You said the depth or death zone? Death. Death zone. It's not the dead zone. It's right, not, but the death but zone. It's, it's, there's this space right. that's very... Um, it's like being in the birth canal. <laughs> yes, it's birth and death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And love. Boy, I, I wish I could understand. I mean, I, I'm not quite sure I know what that is. Well, what love is? Yeah. Well, we don't know what either love or death is, right? That's right. You know, Montaigne has this beautiful line. Uh, he says, survive love and loss. You know, that's mm -hmm. one of his injunctions about how to live. And, uh, and uh, for a long time in my life, I thought that, that suffering was the, the great teacher, you know, and right. I still believe it's the great teacher. But I've come to believe that love is also a great teacher, you know, that they both teach uh, in different ways. And, um, and, and, and as James Hillman in Archetypal Psychology says, there's this profound relationship between love and death, you know, between love and loss, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that it, when one really loves, that, that the reality of loss goes with it. And... Uh, and so the teachings seem to me to connect in some fundamental mm -hmm. way. I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't pretend to know. But I do, mm -hmm. I have come to trust that the contact and intimacy that you're speaking about, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think it's only in the death zone. I think there are other zones mm -hmm. where you can find that level of truth, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. It's usually um, in uh, extreme... It's an extreme situation. It's in, in, yeah. in extreme yeah. situations. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, I am a depth junkie, you know, like other people are, are like, attracted to death, and I am attracted to depth, uh -huh. you know. Uh -huh. For example, yeah. this conversation, this is, no. this is the kind of conversation that draws me. But it's not just your work with death. It's your whole life experience. I'm not interested in death. Right. I mean, it's weird, you know. People, I understand. I don't want to really... I'm happy to talk about this animal. Right. It's so mis m magical. Right. And mysterious. But I... And people probably want to talk to you about death all the I time. I think right? they think yeah. I know something about right. it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Thank you for being with us at the new school. Uh, thank you for being at Inso House. Mm -hmm. yeah. You've been listening to a conversation with Ann Kutcher, MD, and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.com. Org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook.